works in the history of the church. It sold almost as many copies as the Bible. Okay, it's second number one all-time bestseller after the Bible. And when did he write the Pilgrim's Progress? When he was in prison for proclaiming the faith, for preaching. Right? I mean, I just think of all the things that have happened through trials. And how about in your own life? Has God's blessings been manifest through trials? You know, at the time, you're like, how am I going to survive this? This is going to tear me down. It's going to tear my family down. It's going to destroy my faith. And what does it do instead? Hopefully, it strengthens it. It becomes stronger. What does James say in James chapter 1? Consider all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, but let perseverance have its perfect work. Right? And so, at least, at least these first two, two psalms come through David's trial with his son. And a lot of them come when he was on the run from Saul. And that's when you get to see who God is. It doesn't make sense to us. It makes more sense that when everything is good and honky-dory that I would know God better. But usually it's through trials. Why? Because a drowning man doesn't reach for help when he's on the beach. Right? Reaches for help when he's in the water. And the water's coming up over his head. So it says, hear me when I call. Literally, answer me when I call in the Hebrew. Oh, God of my righteousness. So he's, he's pleading with God. Answer me when I call. And why should God answer him? Because he's the God of my righteousness. Is he saying, does he say, answer me when I call, for I am righteous? No, he doesn't. He says, answer me when I call. Oh, God of my righteousness, God, you've imputed, given me your righteousness. You've added your righteousness to my account. What does it say of Abraham? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Reckoned to him for righteousness. Literally added to his account for righteousness. God considered Abraham righteous because he believed him. Believed him at his word. And that's the same way David is righteous. That's the same way you and I are righteous. When we find out that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he is God, that he came in human flesh, then died on a cross, and then rose the third day. When we believe that, when we say, Lord, I believe that that was for me, then guess what? God's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. It's added to your account. So when God looks at my account, he doesn't see negative infinity, right? He doesn't see that I'm a debtor to him, that I owe him my life in death and hell, right? When, when I believe in him, he sees that his righteousness is added to me. Therefore, I'm righteous, not because of anything I've done, or because of who I am, but because of what he has done for me. Amen? So he says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. That's literally, you have enlarged me in my pressings. You have enlarged me in my pressings. It's like I was closed in, my enemies were surrounding me, and you freed me. You freed me. 
So have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So again, he's pleading with them over and over. Hear my prayer. Have mercy on me. Thank you, Nick. How long, O you sons of men, verse 2, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? So how long will you, O you, how long, O you sons, I was, I was memorizing King James there. How long will you, sons of men is actually, it's idiomatic for exalted men. So that could be speaking of David and Ahithophel. David's, or not David, Absalom and Ahithophel, David's counselor, and Absalom, his son. They're exalted men, men who have exalted themselves above God, above who God has put in charge over Israel. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? Was David's glory not turned to shame when his very own son rose up against him? I mean, just think of that. Just think of that. His very own son rises up against him, says, I'll be a better king than my father ever was. And then he takes his dad's, and he shouldn't have more than one wife, that's part of the problem, takes his dad's wives up on the roof of the city and has sex with them in sight of all of Israel. It's in the sight of all of Israel that he does that. His glory, David's glory, is turned to shame. There is another um, reading of this. And it could be, you dishonor my glorious one. So how long, O you sons of men, will you dishonor my glorious one? How long will you dishonor the Lord of glory? How long will you fight against him? How long will you love worthlessness or vanity and seek falsehood? Isn't that a message to America or to the world? How long will you love vanity and seek after falsehood. How long will you love what is, doesn't last? How long will you love what's going to end in the fire? What's going to end in destruction? How long will you love those things? And how long will you seek falsehood? How long will you seek after other gods? How long will you seek after a God that just lines up with exactly what you think and how you believe, which isn't, the, which isn't the true God. What's the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. Right? When we don't believe in the God of the scriptures, the God who created the heavens and the earth, what are we left with? We're left with a God who is false. And our culture is becoming more and more pagan. I would say even more and more totalitarian. If you don't believe what we believe and want the things that we want, then we should just do away with you. If you don't align yourself with our sexual revolution, then America's probably not the place for you. Sorry. I just wonder how long it'll be before every pastor in America, before all their sermons are going to be taken and examined for hate speech. 
because we preach against the things that they love. It's no longer going to be America. Land of the free and the home of the brave. It's going to be the land of the oppressed. Verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. So he talks about the wicked, the sons of men who turn, turn the glory into shame. And then he says, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. God makes a distinction between the wicked and the righteous, between the godly, the holy, the saints. The, the Hebrew word for godly there is chesed. Okay, everybody say it, chesed. Lots of phlegm, okay, throat, chesed. And it means, it means holy, sanctified, set apart. That's what it means. So godly there, you know, it's not, what, what do you think when you just, well, that person's really godly. Kind of like a holier-than-thou type. That's probably what I would have thought like a long time ago, more of a holier-than-thou type or something like that. But it's really someone who's been set apart for God and then also sets themselves apart for God. And that is what a Christian does. They set, they're set apart by God, by his imputation of righteousness. And then that person sets themselves apart for God. They say, I'm not going to walk the way I used to walk. I'm not going to do the things I used to do, and I'm not going to love the things I used to love. Instead, what do they do? They say, Lord, I am yours. I want to do what you want. I want to please you. Do you remember when you first became a Christian and you started putting away all those things that you used to do and used to love? And then you began to just seek after the Lord more and more and more. You desired to please him. You start having fantasies of your buddies saying, hey, let's go downtown and do this and that. And you're like preaching to them, you know. And that's what you're thinking about. You just want to give God's word to people. You want to read his word. You want to pray. It's not something you want to do when you're an unbeliever. When I was an unbeliever, Prayer and reading, especially the Bible, was the furthest thing from my mind. But the moment I became a believer, I couldn't get enough of his word. I was going everywhere seeking for it. You know, I, th I, I went crazy and bought a whole bunch of different like, translations and stuff. My bookshelves are full of different translations. Oh, well, what's, what's the difference, you know? And just you get so excited about what God has to say about his word and about what he does. And then you meet another believer and you're like, oh, there's another one. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You know, it's awesome. You become sanctified. And he says, the Lord will hear when I call to him. Why? Why will he hear when he calls to him? Because of that imputation of righteousness and that sanctification. Okay. God doesn't hear us for any reason other than his own righteousness. Then it says, be angry, verse 4, and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. So this, is, this verse is also used in um, Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let 
the sun go down on your wrath. A lot of married couples use it. You know, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Take care of the problem. Take care of what was angering you. But it says, be angry and do not sin. In this context, be angry. Be angry that they're reviling the Lord. Be angry that they're setting themselves up against you. Okay? That you have en- enemies. Be angry at that. But don't sin. Don't seek vengeance. Don't go after them and say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to give you exactly what you gave me. Don't try to get back at them. Be angry and do not sin. And this, I, th- I, think, I believe, is David preaching to his own soul. He's preaching to his own soul. Listen to what he says. And, and probably preaching to anybody who will listen. Probably the, to the people who are with him as they're running from Absalom. It says, meditate on your bed and be still. Meditate, literally commune with your own soul. Speak to yourself. Preach to yourself. Meditate within your heart, on your bed, and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. So instead of getting revenge, what do you do? You preach, for, preach to yourself. God, you're so awesome. You're sovereign. You're the one who has put me in this situation. You're the one who has allowed this to happen. And I trust you with it. Because you know what? I believe Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. I believe that. And therefore, no matter what trial comes my way, I can relax. I can say, God, you know, and you're the one who's going to bring good out of this situation. Satan in this world wants to destroy me, but you're building me up. It reminds me of an old uh, story I heard about. Some of you guys have heard me tell this before about Samuel Chadwick. Samuel Chadwick was a preacher back in the early 1900s. And um, he was walking along one day through town, and he hears this clanging, this sound ringing through the streets. And he looks over, and there's a blacksmith there, a huge hulk of a man. He's just gigantic. You know? And he's just pounding this piece of metal and pounding it and pounding it. And he goes up, and he's just in awe at the size and the power of this man. And then pretty soon, this little, well, first off, Samuel Chadwick's trying to talk to him. The guy is not answering him. And uh, a little guy comes out of the back. And he says, oh, don't try to talk to him. He's an imbecile. You know, obviously he had some kind of mental handicap or something. But they said imbecile back then. Not very, you know, very correct or anything like that. But that's how they talked. And he says, don't talk to him. He's an imbecile. And um, Samuel Chadwick said, well, then how does he know what he's doing? He says he doesn't know what he's doing. He thinks he's destroying that piece of metal, but what he's actually doing is creating a work of art. He thinks he's destroying that piece of metal, but I tell him how many times he can hit it, I tell him how hard to hit it, and I tell him when to stop hitting it. And before you know it, I put it together, and it's a work of art. That's like the Lord. Think of Job. Satan wants to destroy Job, and God says... Okay, you can touch everything he has, but don't touch his flesh. You can't kill him. And what does God do with Job? He turns him into something magnificent by the end of that book. He pours into his life. And just like 
David here who's running from his very own son. Out of that comes a closer relationship and communion with, communion with God. Probably a greater hatred for his own sin because what happened before Absalom? He had a sin with Bathsheba and he killed Uriah the Hittite who was one of his mighty men. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And now he sees how wicked his sin is, how glorious God is, how great his forgiveness is. When we go through trials, that should be part of the outcome, that we know God better. We understand him better. We, we commune with him in a greater way. So he says, be angry, do not sin. Meditate within your own heart, on your bed, and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Can you imagine David saying that to himself? Put your trust in the Lord, David. You guys say that to yourselves? Maybe when your bank account's dwindling, when your heart's broken. Trust in the Lord. I'm not going to give in to despair. I'm not going to give in to self-pity. Instead, I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Then verse 6, it says, there are many who say, who will show us any good. So he's quoting the people. Maybe it's the people who are on the run with David. Maybe it's the people who got left back in Jerusalem and are suffering under the reign of Absalom. There are many who will say, who will show us any good? They're in despair. They're in despair. Who's going to show us any good? We're starving. We're on the run. We have no home. Our children are with us, and they have no home. How are we going to take care of them? Who will show us any good? And then he says this, and it's a prayer. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Does that remind you guys of any other verse in the Bible? Lord, lift up your countenance upon us. Go to Numbers chapter 6. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Starting in verse 22. So number six, verse 22. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them. So first off, to Aaron and his sons, these are the priests. This is the priestly blessing upon the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it starts off this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What did David just say in that psalm? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Verse 26, Lord, lift up. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I think David's kind of praying that priestly prayer over those who are with him, over those who are in the same predicament as he is. 
He says, he doesn't even tell them, quit, being, quit pitying yourselves or anything like that. He just prays for them. He just prays for them. What a tender-hearted thing to do. So what's the first thing we want to do? You come across somebody, oh, who's going to show us any good? Oh, well, we love you, you know. We'll show you some good. How can I help you? And we should do that kind of thing. But how tender it is just to start praying for them. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Shine your face down on us. Smile upon us. Acknowledge us. Take notice of us. That's what it means. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us. And then it says, You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. So what's the result of that prayer? You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. They're getting drunk and they're eating. They have everything they need. We have nothing. But Lord, we have you. And that is more than they have. We have more joy than they have. Does that, does that resound in your life? I don't have this. I don't have that. But Lord, I have you. I don't have my health. I may not have a job or something like that. You just fill in the blank. What is it that you feel like you're missing in your life? That everybody else has. Or maybe you look at the prosperity of the wicked. And you see how much money they have, how much um, prominence they have. How much material possessions they have. But then you have to think, Lord, I have you. And that gives me more joy than, than, than they have. I mean, think about it. Do you know the God of the universe? The one who spoke and created everything that there is? Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you have joy that you know him? Does that joy just resound through your soul? Examine yourself right now. If you can say, no, it doesn't, I'm bitter and I'm, you know, I'm ugly in the morning, I'm ugly at night. Then pray to the Lord. Lord, renew to me the joy of my salvation. Jesus Christ, you have saved me. Everything that you have will one day be mine because I'm an heir of your throne with you. We are co-heirs with Christ, it says. Every time I say that, it feels like blasphemy. It feels like I'm saying something wrong, but it's true. We're going to look back from heaven one day or from the Lord's kingdom. We're going to say, man, I worried about all this stuff. I guarantee the moment we walk into the presence of the Lord, what are we going to do? What are we going to think? Yeah, I do wish I still had that big house back out in Malibu or here in Golden somewhere and that fancy car. I don't think so. You're going to be thinking, that's all getting burned right now. It's all thrown into the fire. It's, worth, it's worthless to me. It's like a grain of dust to me now in value. 
compared to the glory that's been revealed to me? How awesome is that? And then he says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Notice that you alone, you alone, nothing that this world can give, nothing, nothing that I can squeeze out of this world myself is going to cause me to dwell in safety. You alone, O Lord. It's not the passing pleasures or comforts of this world, but you alone make me to dwell in safety. And I love the old saying, I think it was by Corey Timbloom. I think I have it twisted a little bit, but I like my version anyways. It says, um, look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. Look to Christ and be at rest. Right, don't you love that? Look within, you're going to be depressed. Man, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I'm just rotting away in this bag of flesh that I call my body. Look without and be distressed. We get distressed because of all the things that everybody else has or all the things we wish we had and it creates anxiety in us. But if we look to Christ, we're going to be at rest. All right, let's go on to Psalm 5. I think we're moving along pretty good. Maybe we'll get through 6. All right, Psalm 5. Nick's doubting. To the chief musician with flutes. So, Nick, you have to learn how to play the flute now. Or do you already know how? A little bit? Okay. A little flute. Oh, a little flute. You can play a little flute. All right. To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Meditation is literally, would be better translated groaning, muttering, musing. He's groaning. He's, he's distressed. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my, my groaning. I don't even have words to express what's going on in my heart and my soul right now. Listen to my groaning, though. It's the same type of groaning it talks about in Romans chapter 8, where it says the Holy, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings, which cannot be understood. With groanings. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. Notice he always acknowledges who God is. My King and my God. David's the king. There's no earthly king greater than him. But there's a heavenly king who is much greater than him. And that's a good thing for us to, to do. When we approach God in prayer... I don't believe we're supposed to come just flippantly. I mean, know who it is you're approaching. The glorious one, the, the one, again, who created the heavens and the earth, who is outside of all space and time, who is immense. He's as present here as he is to the farthest reaches of the universe, and even outside of the universe. I always like what... Um, A.W. Tozer said about God's presence or his immensity. He said, if you were to take a bucket and fill it up with water and say that bucket and that water represents all creation, time, space, matter, you and I, everything, all the nations, says the nations are as a drop in the bucket, right? And I, I believe it's in the Psalms. 
nations, there's a drop in the bucket. So he takes that illustration and he says this. And he says, imagine you take that bucket with everything in it and you submerge it into the depths, the lowest depths of the sea. So you have that bucket, all creation, and then you have all that water around. And that's like the immensity of God. He's infinite, limitless. He spans all things. You know, you could take that too far and say, well, God is in the tree and God is in, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. God is outside. I mean, what's outside of all creation? God. And creation is small to him because not only is he outside of all creation, he spans through all creation. So give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, and in the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Direct, I have underlined in my Bible. Direct is a Hebrew word that means to set in order. So it's, it's used of the table of showbread. They were to set the, the bread in order on the table. Or it would be used of the sacrifice, the morning sacrifice, to set the, or, the sacrifice in order. So it's not just groaning anymore. So he's, he says, hear the words, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning, my meditation. So listen to my words. And then he says, I'm directing my prayer towards you. I'm setting it in order. This is a thought-out, premeditated plea to the Lord. How often do you do that? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Lord, and I'm going to say this, 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 and this. And then I'm going to say amen, right? Because <laughs> that's what we'd say at the end of all our prayers. We set it in order. Here's what I need. You think it through. It's not, again, just flippant where you, okay, Lord, bless so-and-so, bless so-and-so. You're really thinking what people need. You're thinking what you yourself need from the Lord. You're thinking, what's going to glorify the Lord? You set it in order, and it's a sacrifice to him. And then he says, and I will look up. This, is, this means to, to wait expectantly. I'm going to look up. I'm going to wait for your answer. I'm going to wait for your favor. Then he says, verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity and shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So look at the progression there. Number one, the progression of verbs anyways, take no pleasure in wickedness. The Lord takes no pleasure in it. And then it says he hates it, and he abhors the bloodthirsty. There's a progression there. The Lord detests wickedness, bloodthirstiness. Those who speak falsehood. And that one always gets everybody because who hasn't lied? Who hasn't spoken falsehood? So again, we have to be born again, right? We have to be regenerated. Because on my own, I'm a liar, I am bloodthirsty. Just cut me off in traffic sometime. You know, I'm a hateful person on my own. 
I'm a hateful person on my own. And he says, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. And also look at the word dwell there. The word dwell is literally sojourn. The Lord will not sojourn with the wicked. So think about it. As we're going through this life, the Lord's not going to be with you. His manifest favor and presence, his special favor is not going to be with you. He's actually against you. And he shows that he's against you by letting you go your own way. By letting, by letting you do exactly what you want to do. Those who are his, what is he going to do? He's going to convict you. He's going to speak to you through his word, through his people, through whatever means he has. And he will let you have the choice. Are you going to repent? Or are you going to keep going and be stubborn and stiff-necked? They won't dwell with you. And that, that word means sojourn. I mean, think of pitching your tent. If you're a sojourner back in this time, you would go around, you'd pitch your tent here, you'd pitch your tent here, you'd pitch your tent here, right? You'd go along on your journey. And every night, you'd pitch your tent. I believe it's in Exodus 35, and this comes after the golden calf, right? So Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and they hear this shout from the congregation, and Joshua thinks it's war, there's war in the camp, and Moses says, oh, it's not war. They're having a party down there. And they go down there, and they're worshiping this golden calf. And so Moses, you know, does what any man of God would do. He grinds it to powder, throws it in the water, and makes the people drink it. I always thought that was a good punishment. But after that, the Lord stops dwelling with the people before he dwelled in the midst of them. But now Moses takes his tent outside the camp and puts it up, and that's where the Lord meets with him. It's outside the camp, outside of Israel. It's not in the midst of Israel anymore. He will not dwell with those who do evil. And then look at the contrast. I think 7 and 8 are the contrast to verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. So I will come into your house. The Lord will not dwell, sojourn, enter the tent of the wicked, right, of those who do evil. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. So notice that it's not because of, again, because of his righteousness. He knows what a sinner he is. It's because of God's mercy, because of his great love that he has for David. It says, in fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. So in fear of you, I will worship. And that's, that's the mark of a person of God, of someone who's been saved, of someone who knows Jesus Christ. They worship and they repent. All right? And maybe in the opposite order. Repent and then you worship. You know, you're a worshiper of the Lord. And that's who you are as a child of God. You worship him. That's a mark. Then it says, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. So he's asking for a plan. He's asking for direction. Okay? He's asking for the plan. 
Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. I need to know how to get out of this mess. Okay, I need to plan. And then he asks for direction. Make your way straight before my face. Lord, let me know exactly which way you want me to go. Have you guys ever prayed that? Lord, show me what you want me to do. Make your way straight before me. And I don't want to walk in my way. I want to walk in your way. So make it straight before me. Make it plain. Make it obvious because I'm a dummy. And I might not get it. Please help. Please be merciful to me. Please show your kindness. Verse 9, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. So he's talking about the wicked again. There is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. So this is used in Romans chapter 3. So go ahead and use there, or go there. Romans 3. And in Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews. He's speaking to the Jews, and I would say he's speaking to the kind of moralist crowd, those who think they're accepted by God because they're not like everybody else, because they don't do what the wicked do, what the pagans do. And so the purpose of chapters 1 through 3 in Romans is to shut every mouth, to let everybody know that they need grace, that they need Jesus Christ, that they need that once for all time holy sacrifice. But starting in verse 10 in Romans chapter 3, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. So that's where he gets that from. Their throat is an open tomb. And he's just putting a whole bunch of scriptures together to describe humanity. To describe humanity. Their throat is an open tomb. It's almost like if you were to go out to the graveyard and there was a tomb that wasn't covered, you're going to walk along and you're going to fall into it. And you're going to be resting on dead men's bones. Right? And that grave may swallow you as well. That's what it means. Their throat is an open tomb. It's defiling. You know, because for a Hebrew, you can't touch a dead body or else you're unclean for a number of days and you have to go through a purification ritual. So let's keep reading in Romans. It says, The throat is an open tomb with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. So you know like an asp is a snake. And when a snake opens its mouth, its fangs begin to protrude. Otherwise, they're tucked up under there. But the moment you open your mouth, those fangs come out. And we're all thinking, well, that's not me. Well, okay, wait till somebody cuts you off in traffic. Those fangs spring forth, right? And they're full of venom, full of poison. We're entitled and we become embittered so easily. Somebody does one thing, takes us out of our comfort, and what happens? Do you know that the only thing that is caging the beast inside is the comforts around you? Take away those comforts and you'll find out what you're made of. Start fasting. You know? Let yourself be in a predicament where people are speaking evil of you. Are the fangs going to come out? And here's the thing. As children of God, we have the choice. 
Before I was saved, I didn't really have the choice. My instincts, everything in me just said, lash out at them. Hurt them twice as bad as they hurt me. But as a child of God, I have a choice. I can now restrain myself and submit to the Lord. I can submit to the Lord now. Do I always do that? No. That's my problem. That I don't always submit to the Lord. And I don't always keep those fangs tucked up. Lord, just cut them off, please. Verse 14 in Romans says, Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's extreme wickedness and hate. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction, and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a description of man, of humanity. That is what we are without the Lord. And then I love the rest of the chapter. I mean, that part just makes you feel crummy. And then the rest of it is like, but God has shown his grace, right? He has made propitiation for us. He took God's wrath and gave us his grace. That's what the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book's showing, and it's through faith. It's through faith that we receive that gift. Verse 10, pronounce them guilty, O God, back in Psalm 5. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. And we're all thinking, wait, I thought we were supposed to pray good things for people. Right? What's David praying to the Lord? Lord, there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. They flatter with their tongue, and they turn around and stab you in the back. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, where they have rebelled against you. Lord, send them to hell. That's what he's praying for these people. Lord, let all your justice come upon them. Isn't that an important word, justice? You guys want, want to see justice done in our world? When you see child molesters and you see um, people breaking laws, high government officials breaking laws like we've seen so much in this last year, and there's no justice, isn't it frustrating? Don't you just want to sometimes tear your hair out? I know what you guys are thinking. <laughs> I'm missing some hair recently. So, real funny, Nick. But it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't tear it out. It fell out. That's why I'm wearing a hat in church. But not seeing justice is frustrating. You know that there's a large population of non Muslim people who actually like Sharia law and maybe not every part of it, because it's a system of justice and inflicting wrath on evildoers. It's just not righteous. It's not right. And it goes way too far, and it's outside of biblical Christianity. But people are so sick of not seeing justice done that just, they just want something that will have justice they just want something. They want justice to be done. But here's what the Christian can say. 
Here's what the one who believes in God can say. Justice will be done. However, until then, I am going to pray for the wicked. I am going to pray for the evildoer that they turn from their ways. What does he say in um, Ezekiel 33? God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways. Oh, turn from your ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Is what he says in Ezekiel 37, 11, or 33, 11. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, we are to pray alongside of that. Jesus said, bless and do not curse. This will happen. What David is praying will happen. And we do look forward to that day when we say God is just and he is holy and he is perfect and the wicked have not gone unpunished like they have for so long. But until that time comes, we pray for repentance for people. We pray that they would turn from their ways and that they would experience and know the love of God. That they would see his grace and his mercy. Let's put it this way. Do you want justice in your life? Do you want God's justice to be done to you? I don't want justice. If God was just to me, he would have already killed me. I want grace. I want mercy. Therefore, that's what I want to give others. That's what I want to show them. That's what I want to preach to them. That's what I want to pray for them. Go to verse 11. But let all those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. And I love this. It's literally covered. Let them shout for joy because you cover them. Are you covered? You're like, by what? By the blood of Jesus? Are you hidden in Christ? Are you hidden in Christ? Because here's the, and I've said this before, what's the scariest thing, the most terrifying thing about God? That he's good. That he's righteous. That he's just. That is terrifying. You say, well, what's so terrifying about that? Those are good qualities. Yes, but we are not good. We are what the Bible says of us. The poison of asps is under our lips. We're liars, we're adulterers, we're haters. We're despisers of God's word. So what is God going to do with us? For the believer, he covers them. God has covered me from the justice of God. Jesus Christ has died for me to cover me. It says, you cover them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. I love that too. With favor, with grace, you will surround him as with a shield. The Lord surrounds you with a shield. I mean, how awesome is that? How bold should we be in the Lord? How bold? How un scared of death in this world should we be the Lord's our defender he covers us we should be joyful okay let's go to Psalm 6 see we are going to do it 
because i got like a couple minutes left, and Psalm 6 is pretty short. It says, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, okay, Nick, you're back on, on an eight-stringed harp, can you play the harp? Okay, you're fired. On an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Oh, Lord, and, and this is the prayer that you should pray after you've um, confessed your sins to the Lord, okay? And what I believe is happening is David has found himself in a predicament or he's diseased or he's suffering from his sin and he's just realizing it, okay? So maybe it's because when Nathan the prophet came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, Nathan the prophet came to him and said, this is what's going to happen to you. Somebody's going to take the kingdom away from you. They're going to lie with your wives in the sight of all the people because you did this thing in secret, but I'm going to have, have it be done before this very son, S-U-N. And so David's praying now. He's confessed his sin to the Lord. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My very bones are troubled. I'm full of anxiety. Down to my very, the marrow of my bones. I'm troubled. I'm shaking. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So my soul is greatly troubled. Down to my very soul. He's sick to death because of his sin. And he says, how long? How long is this going to go on, O Lord? When are you going to show your mercy? When are you going to help? When are you going to put away your indignation and your wrath against me? Then he says, return, O Lord, deliver me. Literally, that's deliver my soul. Because what, what did he say? My soul is greatly troubled. Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for your mercy's sake. And again, over and over, why, why can he come to the Lord? Why can he ask for forgiveness? Why can he ask for salvation? It's because of the Lord's mercy. It's not because of David himself. It's because of the Lord's mercy. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? So he's saying, Lord, if you kill me, who's going to praise you? Who's going to praise you in this world? Who's going to worship at your temple? How could I do that if I'm dead? If I'm in Sheol, which is the literal word for grave. It's almost like he's trying to manipulate the Lord, don't you think? Lord, here's why you should save me, because who's going to worship you if I'm dead, if I'm in the grave? You ever try to do that to the Lord? Try to state the reasons why he should bless you and, or maybe stop afflicting you in some way? You ever do that to the Lord? Lord, how am I going to serve you if I have these problems, health problems, whatever. How am I going to praise you? Sometimes he says, oh, you'll still praise me because you're mine. I bought you and I put my spirit in you and you'll be able to praise me through whatever trial you come across. I also see here what's called progressive revelation. So David, you know, 
way, I mean, he's, this, these are spirit-inspired prayers, but God reveals his will and who he is progressively. That's why we have a whole Bible. It's not just one little book. It's through thousands of years that the Bible was written, and that revelation comes through all 60, or, sorry, all 70 books of the Bible, right? Because there's 66 books, but the book of Psalms, there's five books in the book of Psalms, so 70 books. Verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. So he's showing the Lord how vexed he is, how troubled he is. He's crying all night. Notice, and Charles Spurgeon called these the morning and evening psalms. Because have you noticed every single psalm that we've written, actually starting with Psalm 3, speaks of going to sleep or waking up. Every single one of these psalms. I am weary with my groaning, and all night I make my bed swim. I wonder why. Could it be that this is a place of repentance for him? I wonder where he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Probably in that very bed. He's repenting before the Lord. He's remembering his sin and the reason why he's going through such horrendous trials, such punishment, such discipline. Verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. It's almost like David realizes he's broken through, that the Lord has given him mercy. Have you ever been praying and just realized, I'm done praying about that? Have you ever done that? You've been praying and praying and praying maybe for years about something or weeks or months or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden it's like the light just comes in. And you're like, I'm done praying with that, praying for that. Either the Lord will give it to me or he won't. Or you say, I know I have found favor with the Lord in this. I know I have found mercy with him. And not because of my praying and my incessant praying, but because of his great mercies. It says, oh, save me for your mercy's sake. It says, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So it's kind of like a great reversal there. Before he was greatly troubled, and now he says, let them be troubled. Let them be troubled. And I think that's an okay thing to pray. Let them be troubled. Let those who hate me and hate you, O oh God, be troubled. Let them fall back suddenly. Let them realize that they need your grace too. Let them realize that they need your mercy too. Let them turn and repent. Unfortunately, there's nothing better for us than trials. And I really hate to say that, you know. But again, it's the way God grows us and the way God reveals himself to us. So for this week, as you're spending time in prayer, just read through these psalms. 
Okay? Let, him, let the Psalms be your teacher on how to pray. And you're like, oh yeah, I've got that one. Lord, break the teeth of my enemies. Let them just fall down in the dust, right? No. Let the whole Bible speak to you. Read it in light of the full revelation that you've been given. Amen? So, Father, we thank you so much.